This is the Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly, and welcome to Bloomberg Business of Sports. Happy Memorial Day. It's a strange one, to say the least. So much is different about the world, and so much is different, obviously, in the world of sports and fitness. A guy that I've gotten to know over the years is Rick Stolmeyer. He's the CEO, the founder of Mind Body. And if you don't know what Mind Body is, if you've ever been to a boutique studio, you've used it. They are responsible for scheduling and processing of payments and all sorts of things for thousands upon thousands of gyms and yoga studios, Pilates studios around the world. Rick is an incredibly thoughtful guy. He's working on a book right now. And as you'll hear in this conversation, he is thinking very broadly, but also very specifically about what this means for us as business people, even for us as humans. Check it out. So, Rick, it's great to get some time with you. You and I have gotten to know each other over the years, and I feel like it's such a critical moment, a catalytic moment right now for the fitness industry. I guess I want to start by just setting the table a little bit. Remind us, remind me and our listeners sort of what MindBody is, because you really are and have been at the core of this fitness movement and have an intimate understanding of how this works that that very few people, if anybody, has. Well, Jason, thank you for that. It's it's great to be uh, speaking with you again. And this is truly a pivotal moment, uh, of course, for the world and uh, for the entire wellness and fitness movement as well. So my background, uh, uh, my co-founder, Blake Beltram, and I, we started MindBody in the year 2000. And what we saw happening was this emergence of the boutique fitness movement. It was distinctly different than the, the uh, health and racket sports clubs that had, that had characterized fitness in the 80s and, the, and 90s. And they had a distinct set of business operating requirements. They had a scheduling need. They had a staff management need. They had a CRM uh, uh, opportunity um, and a desire to do all this via, you know, this new thing called the web uh, to do online booking. So we built MindBody out of that, uh, started in my garage in October 2000, and now looking at it backwards and you know, connecting the dots, looking backwards, as Steve Jobs said, uh, you, we can see that we launched our business right at the early stages of what was the second wave mm. uh, of wellness and uh, have just seen fabulous growth over the last 20 years. Um, and you know, right up until March 13, 2020, uh, saw this third wave that really was powered by cloud technology uh, and uh, connected devices and mobile technology in the cloud uh, going into its its uh, second stage. So we, we saw uh, fabulous growth in the 2020s uh, in the headlights uh, right before COVID-19 just uh, utterly interrupted uh, you know that wave. So I want to get to the present wave and and that end and, and maybe where we go next. But let's go back to the first, if we can, because this is something you and I have talked about before. I've written about it. I'm fascinated by it. I mean, this really starts in the 80s, right? It does. Yeah. You know, and, and when you look, look at it backwards, you can see a really clean connection to the emergence of a new generation into their 30s. You know, we think of our 30s as our real adulthood. And when we recognize as human beings, we're no longer kids anymore. We need to get serious about our lives, get serious about our careers, get serious about taking care of ourselves. And that's when you see these big waves start. So, of course, the baby boom generation hitting their 30s right as we went into the decade of the 80s. 
and all kinds of uh, societal changes happened at that moment. And um, uh, one of them was uh, the emergence of, of fitness, and that's when you saw uh, endurance sports, you know, cycling, uh, triathlons became very popular. Racket sports uh, became hugely popular in that time. The International Health and Racket Sports Association, which is the largest organization of fitness today, was born in 1981. Most of the large health club brands that we've known so well in the past several decades uh, happened in that period. Uh, 24-Hour Fitness, Crunch Fitness, uh, Equinox, um, LA Fitness. These brands all emerged uh, in, the, in the 80s. And, and it was empowered. In each one of these waves, you see that there's a technological component that's enabling it. And, of course, the technological component in the 80s was PCs. Right. You now had the ability to automate the, the critical activity of these health clubs, and that critical activity was simply building the memberships. So you saw the health club industry emerge out of what was kind of the small footprint, sweaty gyms of the 60s and 70s into these multipurpose clubs that served both men and women. They had group exercise going on, uh, and they could run the memberships of thousands of people and at the same time, the other top technology at the time was videotape. And so the emergence of VHS, and for those of us old enough to remember, Beta, uh, yeah. was at the same time. Uh, that's when you saw you know, the Jane Fonda workout. You saw Richard Simmons sweating with the oldies. And that brought the concepts of group exercise into the living room of millions of people. And, and that way really continued all the way through the mid-'90s until you had the next generation emerging, which was around 96, 97, that, of course, was uh, my generation. It's Gen X. Yeah. And the Gen Xers, when we reached our 30s, a little bit different personalities than the boomers, like significantly different personalities, more independent, more individualistic, more pragmatic, perhaps. Um, and that's when you saw this proliferation of the small boutique studios. So the micro gym movement and the studio movement started in the late 90s. And that's where you had a much more personal touch. You had less people coming in but the amount of benefit being given to those people was much higher. You know, this is the spin studios, yoga studios, Pilates, gyrotonic. Um, this is when the boot camp started. Uh, High-intensity interval training was invented uh, during this time. And, um, and so that was actually the environment that MindBody was born in, uh, right in the year 2000, to meet the requirements of that group. And, of course, what the enabling technology was the Internet. Right. The ability to link the data, the data of, of hundreds of locations, uh, the ability to uh, enable online bookings, which solved a major problem, and that was the, the birth of MindBody, uh, among others. And then uh, in the decade of 2010, um, what you had, of course, was the emergence of millennials. And with millennials, this is the first generation raised with the Internet. Uh, this is when now the smartphones are online. This is when cloud technologies enable things. That's like, for example, aggregation of enormous amounts of data. So ClassPass was born in that time. MindBody, we released the MindBody app. We became a consumer brand in the decade of the 2010s. Um, and then you saw this, this wave. What's exciting about these waves is that let's go all the way back to the boomers. They're still going to the clubs. Right. And uh, many of them adopted the boutique fitness practices. And the Gen Xs, of course, were still out there. Um, because we're all living longer than ever before. So these ways are generally additive. And, you know, it takes us all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, two months ago. Right. So uh, so let me ask you, Chris, before we get to that, I also want to focus in on exactly what you just said, because I think it's such a critical point, this notion that it's additive and this notion that despite 
some bumps along the way and some shifts in modality and shifts in what may be popular at any given time, the sort of mega trend remains intact. What is it about fitness and wellness more broadly that is ultimately appealing to people because it feels like ultimately this is a as core as core gets to our very being not to go too big on it but it does feel that way it is indeed and it's core to the very being of people who are living in the higher levels of maslow's hierarchy of needs if you think about it most of our ancestors for for most almost entirety of human history have lived in subsistence which is the bottom two rungs of maslow's hierarchy if you can picture that that pyramid at the bottom was physiological needs. Basically, you know, that's food, water, safety, uh, or, or food, water, shelter. Mm-hmm. And then there's basically physical safety. Uh, and, and that's what, you know, most of our ancestors were dealing with up until the end of World War II. And at the end of World War II, you started seeing millions of people uh, per year uh, emerging into this new middle class. And then ultimately many of them to the uh, upper middle class and the more affluent levels. And when, you, when you're at that level, your mind can shift to now thinking about the things that are really much more deeply meaningful, uh, love, and belonging, relationships, self-esteem, and ultimately the very p- pinnacle of self-actualization, meaning actually realizing what your life should be about. And I think there is that point in all of our lives, those of us that are lucky enough to be in the, in the middle class or above, where we realize that without a body that works, everything else is irrelevant. You know, you, you can't take it with you, and your path is going to be shorter and harder if you don't take care of your physical body. And then it even starts going down that because wellness is about way more than just physical fitness. That's the cornerstone. You know, without a, without a body that works, we don't have time to think about our social well-being, uh, thinking about our emotional well-being, um, getting some sense of purpose in our lives. And so these, this concept of, of the seven dimensions of wellness is extremely important and has become the principal driver uh, of the vast majority of humanity. I mean, north of 2 billion people now um, are, are in the middle class or above. And while we can talk about how certain societies, well, the middle class hasn't done as well, perhaps in North America as they did in the prior decades, if you go out with a longer lens and look at the whole of the world, we've never had this many people living outside of subsistence. And that has been this giant force driving the fitness industry in particular, and of course the overall wellness industry as well, uh, over the last two decades. So let's talk about this moment, because I feel like that is exactly where we are right now. And in terms of having a group of people, and it's, I think, important uh, to point out, very important point, which is we are talking about a an educated and ultimately affluent to very affluent group of people that we're talking about here. I mean, you and I are talking in you know late May of 2020, the world has been fundamentally changed and we've been reminded of mm-hmm. the of the fact that, you know, different people are living very different lives. We are seeing record unemployment, all of those different things. And yet, for a segment of the population of which you and I are very fortunate to be a part of, People are more worried in some ways about their well-being, their wellness, both physical and mental. And I do wonder, this moment, what you make of it. Well, there's a lot here to unpack, isn't there? And it's important to all of us to 
we try to try to get into focus in this. You know, we're, we're staring into a uh, into a misty future and trying to understand. You know, what is this this new so-called normal that we're going to live in? And uh, I, I think we can anchor ourselves in certain fundamental truths. Uh, let's start with the first thing that, that human beings don't flourish in isolation. Uh, we, I, I think, we all know people right now in our lives, or perhaps even in our own households whose mental well-being, perhaps even physical well-being, has been diminished in the last mm-hmm. couple of months. And that's really, of course, of great concern, because as we know about COVID, uh, COVID is striking the people who are in poor shape the worst. So, you know, the, the so-called pre-existing conditions, uh, obesity, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, these things are predominantly caused, are predominantly preventable and predominantly caused by a sedentary lifestyle and insufficient nutrition or the wrong nutrition. And so I think that this period of time is, is shining a spotlight on how important it is to get the whole of society in better shape. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to go from being a couch potato to being an athlete. But even a moderate amount of exercise, even just, just incremental improvements in one's diet, can substantially change your health outcomes. And I think COVID has, has drawn that into sharp relief. And as we emerge out of this crisis and the data starts getting analyzed and they start drawing these correlations, um, my hope, our hope at Mind Body, is that the people who pay for healthcare, and that is the employers, the insurers, and the governments of the world, are going to recognize that we have a global imperative to improve all of our fitness. Right. And I think that portends very well uh, for the future of our industry and, of course, for the future of humanity. Because when you get somebody moving more and you get them eating a little bit better, everything gets better in their lives. Right. You know, but it's hard to get people over that hump, right? It's, that's why those teachers, those trainers, those therapists are so important because they're the ones that can actually help the individual make a, a material change in their lives. So that's something we believe is true. The second, of course, is you know, we clearly are in a recession now. We're, we're, you know, the, the, only argue, the only debate is how long and deep this recession is. Well, let's assume that it's a hard one. Like this is on par with the Great Recession of 08, uh, 07, 08, 09, or maybe even a little worse. Just if we start with that assumption, I'm not saying that, that I know that to be true because I'm certainly no expert in macroeconomics. But, I think we can agree but, that we are in a recession and it is going to be deep and potentially long. I, I think we can take that as a given. Well, I, I certainly happen to agree with you. Um, and, and so given that, well, what do we think is going to happen? Because obviously what that does is it puts, uh, it reduces that number of people that have discretionary income and the ability to, to invest uh, in their own well-being. Um, but you hit on something important for the people, the, the, the current business owners and operators in the wellness industry, the vast majority of their clientele have, were already the affluent. Right. And what we saw in the Great Recession of 07, 08, 09 is that, you know, imagine this dual-income professional couple, and one partner has lost their job, and the other one has had their bonus taken away. Um, you know, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to defer that, you know, that Caribbean vacation. They're going to maybe put off buying the, the new car, uh, the home improvement. Maybe they're not going to upsize to the bigger home. Uh, but they're not putting off their health club. They're not putting off their, their exercise routine. In fact, what we saw in the Great Recession is people actually doubled down on it. Right. And we saw that most of the big brands 
that we know today in, uh, in boutique fitness uh, and wellness. So Orange Theory Fitness, F45, Pure Bar, Bar 3, Daily Method, Bar Method, uh, Yoga Works, Core Power Yoga, most of them actually emerged in the middle of economic crisis. And in my conversations with the business leaders of uh, both the bigger brands as well as uh, the, the, the strong local brands, so we call them the local tigers, uh, their plan to invest uh, coming out of this crisis, and, and they see an opportunity. And so uh, we believe that the industry is actually going to reaccelerate quite, quite quickly out of this. Uh, the question is, what are people going to be doing? Right. And, well, you anticipated and, my next question because what they – I see them accelerating. I agree with you to some extent. But unlike the last crisis, which was a financial one, this is a health crisis at its core. And human behavior has changed and presumably will change on a relatively permanent basis. So what does that acceleration look like? Well, it's clearly going to be led by virtual experiences. And, and led by is an important qualifier because all of the data that, that we've looked at, and, and we've been researching, you know, in the midst of this crisis, we've been, we've been running polls of, uh, of consumers and business owners to ask them what their intentions are. The vast majority of consumers are saying, now these are consumers that were already engaged in boot, predominantly boutique fitness through the MindBody app. We asked them, First of all, have you adopted virtual practices, you know, streaming video, mm-hmm. uh, video on demand? And of course, a large, large percentage of them have done that. And the question, of course, is what do you plan to do after the crisis lifts and you're able to return to these businesses? Will you? The vast majority, more than 90 percent, have said they intend to return to their, their face-to-face offline experiences. Um, and about half of those have said, and I will continue the virtual as a right. supplement a copper activity because even somebody that was highly engaged was probably only going to the studio a couple of times a week. So there's plenty of opportunity to supplement that with the, the accessibility and affordability of, of the at-home experience. And, uh, you know, you're right. Like, so my dad, we, well, my dad is 88 years old and we, uh, we got him a personal trainer, uh, about six months ago. I wish I could take credit for this. It was actually my wife's idea. <laughs> and he just loved his personal trainer, um, and would show up and, and this guy would, would give him these exercises designed for, for, for elders. You know, it's about strength and balance and, and avoiding injury. Anyway, he's doing it now on his iPad. My, yeah. my 88 year old dad is taking live streaming classes and sessions on his iPad. So this crisis has trained all of us on how easy it is to do that, and we're not going to forget that easily. Um, but it, 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 we don't believe that people will lose their hunger for the face-to-face. In fact, it may even be amplified uh, in the years ahead. Yeah. I do wonder, though, Rick, just to challenge you on this a little bit, you know, we talk a lot about and we think a lot about the restaurant industry for instance and you know in the in the immediate term in the short and maybe even to midterm basically being able to make ends meet to survive you know that the business model is crimped at best and devastated uh at worst ultimately we are talking about when it comes to boutique fitness 
a lot of small businesses in, in many cases. And I do wonder about the viability in the short term, basically being able to survive and then on the other side, being able to find that right mix of things to charge the right amount that make them viable businesses. It's clearly going to be challenging, and I think it is a pretty close analog to the restaurants and the boutique fitness studios. These are both experiences that that we, prior to COVID, were, were spending a lot of time and money uh, yeah. on. And, and so, you know, I, I, as I recall my Econ 101 class in college, uh, if you have a supply that's been crimped, and, and crimping is the right word, and let me just add into that. I think this will be a time in which many of these these uh, boutique wellness studio owners just throw in the towel. Yeah. Uh, and and it's you know it, it, this is the time when you go how, how committed am I really? How hard do I really want to work for this? And so you know perhaps a quarter of the industry that we see today the, of the of the bricks and mortar locations we saw before uh, COVID probably won't be there uh, by the end of the year. Um, and, and keep in mind, by the way, underlying this has always been this kind of like steady flow of people opening up their doors and trying to make a go of it. And, you know, only half of them are there two years later. So there's always been this underlying natural churn. And what we've seen historically is that once a business owner gets past her second year, well, that's when she's, if she's gotten that far, her chances of long-term, of long-term, uh, flourishing are actually quite high because she's developed her following, she's perfected her craft and her business model, and, and those businesses can go on for decades. Uh, so I think we'll see, it's like a shaking of the tree. We're going to see a lot of people just capitulate, and that's probably helpful in the mm-hmm. near term, because what it's going to do is enable those who are more committed to have a more viable business model. And so now you take a spin studio where there were 30 bikes, and now there can only be 12 bikes right. uh, to give those distancing. Um, instead of the classes being stacked back to back with a five minute changeover, now you need 15 minutes or 20 minutes for a, for a total wipe down and sanitation of everything. You can't have people queuing, uh, you can't have people just like mingling outside because there's no way to maintain social distance when the, the next batch of people are coming in. You add all that up and you just don't have the capacity to deliver as many sessions as you did pre COVID. You know, what estimates, if I had to throw a dart on the wall, maybe 60% capacity yeah. prior, than prior to the crisis. So Econ 101, uh, if we assume there's still sufficient demand, if a quarter of the storefronts have gone away, and if the storefronts remaining only have 60% of their prior capacity, what happens to the price? It, it has to go up. Right. And, of course, and, and so I think the price of a nice meal in, you know, in Soho is going to go up. I think the price of a boutique wellness experience is going to go up. It will be, um, it'll be something again that'll need to be in the early days, at least highly targeted at the affluent. Yeah. Um, who, who don't care if the class cost $25 or $35 or $40. They just want the class. Um, and I think you can help um, ease the sting of that for those who aren't as affluent because you could offer hybrid memberships. Mm-hmm. So you have also, the class has only you know, 12 people in it in a spin class, but you've got a bike at home and you connect that bike. And by the way, that, that thing that Peloton's doing today is gonna get totally democratized. It, it, those, the ability to link up a machine to a, a cloud server 
uh, and mash up your uh, cardiovascular output to the, to the output of the machine, that is now democratized. Uh, we offer that capability to our customers at MindBody. It's called Fitmetrics. And you're going to start seeing people deploying this in their home uh, with a myriad of different providers. So I could have a practice where I'm going into the face-to-face experience maybe two or three times a month, and I'm doing a streaming class other times. Right. So you, could, you could imagine hybrid memberships that give you a certain amount of face-to-face experiences and then unlimited access to streaming. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I I have been thinking, obviously, a, a lot about this, and I do think about that at-home piece a lot. And I think I've told you before that, you know, when Peloton first came on the scene a, a few years ago, we were at a moment where I thought, you know what? doesn't make sense. That's a backward step. You know, we've come out of the basement in many ways and we want to be in these boutiques. We want to be around other people. I certainly, and I own this, I've told John Foley this, um, the CEO of Peloton, founder and CEO of Peloton, that, uh, you know, I think I missed in many ways the power of the, the virtual community and the power of technology in all of this. And you understand this a lot better than I do. I do wonder, to pick up exactly where you were talking about, how quickly, if we can even ballpark it, has this accelerated this online and at-home trend sort of which which i think was a an underlying trend and and now feels like a a mega trend i mean has COVID accelerated that five years ten years like help me help give me some context here i think five years is a good number because you know as we were mapping out this particular wave of of fitness and thinking about what's coming next you know the natural arc is when the the gen z's hit their 30s well that's going to start happening in uh, actually about seven or eight years. And so, you know, it's not a clean cutoff, is it? I mean, generations are just a, a, a way to kind of understand things in a broad perspective and uh, aren't definitive necessarily. But And but certainly you're disrupted by something like COVID, right? You know, it's like you think about like big, big economic shocks or, you know, something uh, of this scale, obviously that generations are, are deeply affected all generations are deeply affected by by something this this big and and exogenous well exactly in fact you know and if you go back to read the original books the books by Howe and strauss you know in the early 90s the the people who crafted this whole generational theory um that's exactly what they said big big disruptive events can change the timeline and, and i think that's happening here and so one of the ways that's happening is how in how instantly comfortable we're all getting with virtualized uh, and uh, cloud-connected experiences. And, and you know, imagine how much harder this would have been if COVID had hit five years ago. I know. I mean, it, it would have been as disruptive as this has been, seamlessness with which we all moved to Zoom meetings and the existence of Facebook Live and the existence of, of Instagram uh, video, uh, uh, and, of course, the, just the predominance of YouTube. All of these things weren't there even five years ago to the degree they are now. Um, and so I think this has probably accelerated the timeline five to seven years to kind of, kind of land that one. And, and, um, and when you do this kind of disruptive shift, it's not, it's not a, it's not a clean wave anymore, is it? Like the wave just crashed on rocks. Right. Right. So there's this, this kind of messiness that it means a lot of business churn, um, and a lot of rapid business creation. 
So I think business formation in the space will accelerate. Uh, I think clearly, you know, Peloton and Mir, uh, is, this is extremely fortunate for them. And uh, the adoption rates have been fantastic. The reality we all got to remember, though, is, is they're not going to own it. All right? Right. This, this, this is way, way too easy to do what they're doing. And um, there is something about having a relationship, even if it's predominantly virtual, a relationship with your, with your teacher and your trainer. And, yes, you can have that to some degree through a Peloton or a mirror. But the idea of a, like a local and authentic experience with your local teacher, your trainer, uh, with a therapist uh, that allows you to actually meet them face to face periodically. Um, that's something that the existing boutique wellness industry can provide. Right. And there are hundreds of thousands of those practitioners. So if it was all going to be Peloton and Near, then we would all be taking classes from the same few hundred people. Yeah. I don't, you know, 50,000 people in a class. Uh, I don't think that's going to have quite the same appeal. Yeah. Um, you know, and, I also... And I, I, go ahead. I, no, go ahead. I, I'll come back to that point. Well, no, I'm, I'm going to take a pretty radical shift in the conversation, so finish what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, okay. So so what we see the opportunity of doing, by the way, in, in this sheltering at home, I have, a, I have, I have a, you know, two millennials and two Gen Zs, and the Gen Zs have been teaching me what they've been doing on their devices and computers all day. Yeah. Like, because I'm, literally, I'm actually experiencing them. And so this idea of these, these kind of micro-social circles that they create globally is really fascinating. So people who that are interested in a certain topic and uh, the ability to specialize in the formation of your social group. Uh, my 20-year-old is on a, a system called Discord, and Discord is, is kind of like Slack for everybody. And you, you create your own group. Uh, it's called a server. And the group creates its own group rules. And they socialize together. They decide if they're going to let somebody into the group. Um, and my daughter is in fact running a server with, with thousands of members on it. And she helped craft the purpose and the rules of this group. You can imagine wellness developing in the same way. Yeah. So the relationships are no longer just restricted to the people you have locally. You could be part of a group that has represent representatives on every continent, um, that we occupy continent, uh, and, um, centered around a particular set of interests, time of life, professions. Um, and so I think that the definition of what is local and authentic changes. Yeah. And, um, and, but it's still a massive opportunity and there's a whole new type of, of, of wellness business that emerges out of this. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, and, and I think it, it is something that as you look at the history of, of Peloton, just taking that as an example, it is something that I think Peloton opened a lot of our eyes to, which is this notion of a a very meaningful community being created among people who never had met each other, but had these commonalities to that exact point. And, uh, you know, I remember going to Peloton homecoming last year, last May, and seeing all these people sort of come in who had never physically met each other and yet felt deeply connected to each other because they had taken the same class and they had, had found each other and deepened their relationship virtually on Facebook and other social media platforms. And I do, as you say, it's a really interesting point that, 
Peloton and, and Mirror and others don't actually own that concept. They helped pioneer it to, to some extent, but it's going to be much mm-hmm. bigger. You know, one of the things I, I also wonder about, and I'm talking to you, you know, from my home in suburban New York City, and, and you're out uh, on the West Coast in uh, San Luis Obispo, where you've lived for a long time. One of the things we are talking and thinking a lot about these days is how demographic shifts and folks moving out of cities or moving to different cities, how that affects the the broader economy, given how you think about the economy and given that you're on the opposite side of the country from me, how do you see that playing out? I mean, this is coming on a week, Mm -hmm. you and I are talking where Facebook, of all people, the company has said half of their workforce is going to be remote in the next 10 years. I have to imagine that that affects all the businesses we're talking about, too. Well, it's going to shift uh, where they need to be, for sure. And, you know, another anecdote. So my eldest 27-year-old daughter, she and her boyfriend, uh, who's around the same age, he's a, sen- he's a senior software engineer. She's a school teacher. They're both living in San Francisco uh, in a house with six other people. Like this, you know, classic yeah. millennial living uh, in, in the 2010s. Um, they're done with that. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, they just signed a lease on their place, uh, a new place in Marin. They're going to get out of the city. Um, the, uh, their comment was, and they just went up, they've been sheltering with us for two months. They just went back up into the city to check things out. And there's just lots of space for rent already. And the yeah. rents are dropping. So, I, I think what's one of the things that I've, as a Gen Xer, I found fascinating by millennials that they that, that they love this living right in these high density neighborhoods, which is something my generation like just didn't didn't love. Like right. know, our, our dreams were around white picket fences and, yep. and green grass lawn. And uh, I think there's a real chance that that has permanently shifted as well. Um, this to, as, as tough as this was for those of us in suburbia, it was much tougher on those people living. In uh, in the downtown area. You know, oh, I don't. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't even think it's close. I mean, in in terms of you know, again, I'm talking to you from Westchester County, and my I can tell you like definitively, my experience has been so starkly different from people who are living in an apartment in New York City, especially if they have a family. You know, the idea that I can go for a walk, that I can, you know, call you from my back porch with birds chirping in the background and all these different things, it is radically, radically, uh, radically different. Well, as we as we wrap up, I mean, and you've been giving me such good, such a good sense of this already, but I do wonder, because as you've demonstrated through this conversation, you're an incredibly uh, thoughtful guy. You have an understanding of, of history and and I do wonder, like, how do you think this has changed you? This experience has changed you because you've built this business, you sold it, um, you've continued to build it, you think about your product, but but how do you think it's changed you as a human? Well, first of all, it's it has underscored to me the most the most important things of life uh, to not take for granted one's own health, um, the uh, the pointlessness of material possessions. If the rest of your life isn't isn't in order, um, for me, uh, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate. You know, my my economic well being isn't uh, isn't at risk in, in this situation. Um, this has certainly put my business under severe challenge, 
but there are many, many, many other people that are going to be really suffering uh, in the years ahead. And so for me, uh, my wife and I, we're a lot of thinking about how can we help. Uh, you know, Oprah just put out a call, but really interesting what she's just done. She's, you know, giving quite a bit of money already to, to causes. She's saying those who, those of means are going to need to step up. Right. Uh, because our society uh, matters far more than our, than our personal wealth. And, uh, you know, you can't take it with you. Right. And so when we see a, a crisis like this that has interrupted so many people's lives, uh, and has caused great suffering for people. Uh, it helps you recognize that. And so for me personally, um, I've always cared a great deal about uh, socioeconomic equality, for people to have equal access to, to opportunities, to, to health care, to education. Um, this makes me motivated to double down on that because I don't want to live in a world like some third world country where I'm, you know, my kids and I are affluent and we're living behind walls with yeah. concertina wire on top. Uh, you, you know, we've, if you've seen countries like that, it's, it's abysmal. You know, you have to hire private security so your kids can get to school. Um, that's not a world I want to live in. Uh, so it, it has sharpened my focus on those issues. Let's, let's fix the societal issues we had before um, while at the same time, creating uh, an exciting vision for the future so that the younger generations can be excited about where we're going and that there's economic mobility for those that are, that are hardworking and talented and, and want to achieve in their lives. Yeah. So, so it, it's refocused me on that. Well, it definitely feels like we are at all sorts of intersections and pivot points and the decisions that we make right now, uh, over the next few months even, uh, are going to have a, a really strong determination, maybe in a way that you and I have never seen uh, in our lifetime. So uh, so grateful to you for mm -hmm. spending some time with me, Rick Stolmeyer. Uh, I feel like this was long overdue in, in some cases. Like we've had some, some good conversations over the years, but we've never really been able to, uh, to go deep like this. And I'm sorry it took a pandemic to do it, but um, <laughs> really enjoyed it and uh, hope to see you on one of these coasts before too long. Thank you, Jason. Well, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and, uh, and uh, have enjoyed the conversation. And that was my conversation with Rick Stolmeyer, CEO, co-founder of Mind Body. Really loved catching up with him. We've known each other for a few years. I've been an admirer of him and his work and can't wait to read his book when that comes out. Also can't wait to see what his company and obviously the fitness industry looks like on the other side of this. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, the Monday podcast edition. We're here every week, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday with some of the most interesting and we hope informative conversations you hear about the business of sports. I'm Jason Kelly. Check me out on Twitter at Jason Kelly News.